Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Marina Vitt, Chief Executive Officer of the Urban Development Institute of Australia's Queensland Division. It's wonderful to have you along today. I really enjoyed my conversation with Marina, who I've known for over 10 years, since her time as the Director of Sales and Marketing with Honeycomb's Property Group back in 2007. Before I introduce Marina to you properly, let me briefly introduce myself for those of you who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the Managing Partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if we can assist you with any recruitment needs within your own organisation, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Let me now introduce to you Marina Vitt. Marina Vitt has been the CEO of the Queensland Division of the Urban Development Institute of Australia since July 2012. The UDIA is the peak body representing the property development industry throughout Australia. Marina has a Bachelor of Business Communications with Distinction and has done a variety of other professional development courses, including the Strategic Perspectives in Nonprofit Management course at the Harvard Business School. Marina is also on the board of SEQ Water. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Marina Vitt. Hi Marina, welcome to the RSA podcast. It's great to have you along today. Uh, maybe to begin with, just for the benefit of people who are listening in, just let us a bit know a bit about your current professional responsibilities. Hi, Richard. It's really good to be here. Um, My current role is the CEO of the Urban Development Institute of Australia. Um, We're a membership-based organisation and we're here to assist the development industry um, build the best communities possible for people to live in. And we do that through a number of things, through, you know, research, um, through knowledge-based events, through professional development, um, through advocacy. Mm -hmm. So there are major channels. Um, The other role that I have is... As a director of SEQ Water, okay. and that's a relatively new role, so I'm enjoying that because that's a really, really interesting and, and meaty sort of challenge to get my head around. Sure, and I suppose uh, before we get back to UDIA, the you know the water um, space is a particularly challenging one. There's a lot of change and a lot of uh, things happening there, so I imagine that uh, every day must be different. Yeah, no. Look, I, as I said, it's a really um, it's a meaty challenge for me, and mm-hmm. I think that's really important because it's good to get my head in in two spaces. Yeah. It keeps me occupied and okay. worrying about two things rather than worrying completely about one. Sure. Uh, and uh, and there's a lot uh, a lot that's involved in terms of uh, the, the water industry, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I think um, it, it, there's some very pointy discussions to be had in that space, and okay. um, and a lot of discussion too with the community in relation to making sure everyone's aware of how that space really works. Mm-hmm. What do you mean specifically when you're talking about pointy discussions? Oh, I guess, you know, when you when you turn the tap on, I guess you don't really think about where it comes from sure. and all the, all the decisions that are mm-hmm. made in order for it to get there and all the 
infrastructure investment that's involved and, mm-hmm. and the prioritisation of that that investment and, and those sorts of decisions that have to be made in order for it to actually, you know, come out the tap. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's a challenging time for Queensland currently in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, I think last night we saw that almost 90% of the state is in drought. Right. So, um, so, yeah, interesting times to have joined the board. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I imagine some synergies between that and your primary role with UDIA, given that you know the development industry is so dependent on water, is a, a big facet of what they do. Yes, absolutely. And you know, in terms of you know um, development within catchments and the impact of those, and yeah, so there's a fair bit of crossover. So mm-hmm. um, hopefully, yes, I can add value in that sense as well. Okay, great. And give us an idea of the scope of UDIA in terms of size and headcount and things like that. Look, it's not a massive organisation. It's a not-for-profit mm-hmm. um, primarily, which is um, really important to think about it in that context. We have around 20 heads um, yep. within this organisation uh, and we have around a thousand members that we okay. that we service so mm-hmm. uh, we we do a fair bit of work with a quite a f- you know a, a small amount of people mm-hmm. um, to service each one of those members mm-hmm. every year and and the you know those who are non-members and interface with us as well okay and what would be some of the primary elements of your role the primary elements of my role, are, you know, have been really to sort of, I guess, when you enter the not-for-profit space, this, the whole notion of not-for-profit is quite a bizarre one, really. I mean, like, yeah, if you're a not-for-profit, well, you're not going to last very long if you're not making a profit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I guess the the attitude that I bring to any space that I enter is that, you know, it's a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, we have to have a mission and a cause mm-hmm. um, and a reason for being, um, and we have to uh, we have to consolidate around that. Um but essentially, at the end of the day, we owe it to all of those people who who have faith in us and invest in us to actually mm. be here in years to come. Mm. So my job is making that happen. And so um, for my role here, there's been a lot of change management that's been involved mm-hmm. in the role um, to really sort of have a look at us, make sure that we're absolutely certain of who we are as an organisation and that we're relevant to the members mm-hmm. that we represent because relevance is is everything. One mm. of my favourite quotes is, um, if, if you don't like change, you'll like irrelevance even less. Um, and so that's pretty if much my... If you don't like change, you'll like irrelevance even, even less. less. Okay, that's a great one. Mm. And one of the things I'm really interested in talking about is the fact that in your career, you've worked both within government and within very commercial environments, and now in this uh, what you call not-for-profit or not-for-dividend space, um, uh, because it's quite fascinating to meet people who've been able to transition their careers across those, you know, in some degrees uh, similar, but in many degrees, uh, you know, very different um, cultural and, and commercial sort of drivers. But before we get to that, let's go back to where it all began and have a bit of a chat to us about your early life, you know, where you were born, mum, dad, growing up, etc.? Uh, I grew up in Brisbane. Okay. Um, and so my, my parents are migrants, they're Italians, okay. um, who came out to uh, Australia via Canada um, after the Second World War. So, right. um, so yes, I grew up uh, in an interesting environment of being, mm-hmm. I guess, what people thought was unusual back right. then. Yeah. Um, some kid who turned up to school with a strange lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yes, I had you know a, a great childhood, really. Right. Um, and so, um, what brought them to Australia? There were no jobs in okay. Italy. Though. I mean, they were very young when they came out here. Right. So their parents had no um, no jobs, and uh-huh. so their families came eventually to Australia um, because there was opportunity right. here. Right. And how long were they in Canada for? 
Uh, they were in Canada. Um, it's a long story, but my dad was in Canada probably for about um, 15 years. Mum was there for about 10. Okay. I'm actually a migrant who came via Canada as oh, well. Oh, okay, right. But from English yeah. rather than uh, Italian background. There you go. And so what so sort of... The, the, the stopping off point to Australia, it well, would seem, maybe. for a lot of people. Yeah. It seems, uh, yeah, I, from my own circumstance, my parents uh, were in Edmonton for two years mm-hmm. and the year I was born, it was minus 42 degrees centigrade. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, so it was the cold that drove them here more than anything else. And so what sort of work did your dad do? Uh, he was in the building industry. Okay. So, um, you know, very much worked with his hands. So right. uh, I learned some valuable lessons, lessons from him. You know, okay. a very hardworking individual who provided very well for his family. Okay. And what about mum? Uh, Mum was the backbone of the business. She was, you know, the um, she was the financial head okay. of the business um, yeah. and the household. Right. <laughs> so Mum called the shots, I think, pretty uh-huh. much, um, and um, and was a really important part of that partnership that sure. they had. Okay. Um, to to have a business, to work hard, and, and to raise a family, and give them a good education. Mm-hmm. And brothers and sisters. I have a brother. Yes, yeah. indeed, an older brother. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay, great. So, um, how old were you, or you were born here? Mm-hmm. You were born in Brisbane, mm-hmm. and uh, and so. Um, uh, early life, going to school and then high school and so on. Did you have any jobs while you were going through high school? Oh yes, um, Mum, in her her wisdom, um, made sure that I had a job. I think the day that I turned fifteen, right. which is when you were legal, yeah. <laughs> she'd gone to the news agents and said, "Right, you'll employ my daughter." She's right. a forceful woman, my mother. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I, you know, from the minute I was able to work, um, I was more than happy to do it, right? Uh, because it, um, you know, helped make me independent. I sure. guess okay. from an early age. And then after high school? After high school, I studied at um, QUT. Yeah. Um, I did uh, a business degree in communications. Okay. Uh, and um, at that stage in my life, I really thought I wanted to be a journalist, actually. Right. I'm okay. not really sure what <laughs> fueled mm-hmm. that. Um, perhaps the desire to influence the world, I, you know, around the kitchen table that I grew up around, um, mm-hmm. there was always discussion. Uh, and it was always discussion about what was going on in the world, the politics of what was going on in the world. So it was never um, it was never light mm-hmm. and breezy discussion okay. <laughs> in the Vit household. It was always um, very purposeful mm-hmm. discussion, um, and we engage in debate mm-hmm. every night. And so I guess that's probably where the desire to sort of be a journalist came from. But that Plus was working at the news agents? Yes, the perhaps. News surrounded by magazines and newspapers, perhaps. And, that was it too. So did you uh, aspire to be a crime reporter or a political reporter or, or what really tickled your fancy? Oh, I think it was a political reporter right. that I really wanted to be. But, you know, my... my um, my journalism career was relatively short-lived um, when I found out the reality of it, which yeah. was, you know, every sort of hour on the hour I'd be in a booth sitting sort of, you know, in between four sort of padded walls um, talking into a microphone, really talking to myself. Oh, OK. <laughs> so radio was what you were leading yes, towards? Yes. Right. I went into radio. Um, I, I liked the immediacy of, uh-huh. of radio. I, I really enjoyed that. But at the same time, I realised that, you know, I probably wasn't really going to change mm-hmm. the world or have much influence mm-hmm. over it. And I guess I got, you know, um, I've always been the sort of person who's seen opportunities as they've crossed my path. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been one of those people who sort of had, you know, a five- or a ten-year plan ahead of me. And mm. when opportunities presented themselves, if I thought they were things that I would enjoy or would make me a better human or whatever, I, I would... Um, I would seriously consider them and ultimately take them. Mm. So, And is that something that you've sort of kept to your entire career or have you become more planned as you've you know, um, uh, matured as a leader? 
<clears throat> I'd like to say that I've become more planned as I've matured as a right. leader, but I'd probably be lying. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, I've done, I don't know, uh, it must be coming close to 100 of these now, and there's definitely two camps. There's a camp of the people who are extremely planned and have their vision for the future and, uh, you know, everything's to the plan and the goals, and then there's probably as many who are very much like you, who've mm. just uh, seized opportunity as it kind of presents and, you know, there's no right rule for everybody, is there? Yeah, well, I guess <coughs> it's good to know that I'm not the only unplanned human <laughs> on the planet. Oh, that's good. And so um, uh, you went to university, you did your uh, Bachelor of Business Communications mm. and then did you realise whilst studying that journalism was not the career for you or was that happening? No, it actually took me to practice it. Right. Um, where I realised that it probably wasn't for me at that particular point in my time and I have you know occasionally I sort of look back at it and think mm-hmm. you know particularly when I'm watching what's happening at a political level um at you know at the moment sometimes I think oh geez I'd love to go back right. and <laughs> interview a few people <laughs> um but generally speaking I'm pretty happy with the decisions that I've yeah. made uh, well, you have to start a podcast you yes can, you can interview <laughs> yes. developers and yeah. uh, it's uh, good fun. And so um, uh, once you finished your degree, so what, what was the sort of first proper job after that? My first job um, was in, in radio uh, okay. up in Cairns. So oh, I was okay. on 4CA. Right. Hits and Memories, 4CA, <laughs> uh, and, uh, which was a great, a great gig because it mm-hmm. meant that I got to leave home. And as an Italian yeah. you know, girl, that was a pretty big deal yeah. to actually get to leave home. Cairns was no, a pretty no wild place back in those days. Um, yeah, It was a pretty wild place. Um, but but it, was, it was a good experience for me. Mm-hmm. to be able to get that sort of independence. Um, it was one of the only jobs going in that radio space around the country <clears throat> at the time, uh, and I was very lucky to be able to, to get that job. Okay. And so uh, it was, you know, I was thrown in boots and all. Yeah. And uh, I had a good go at it, um, but realised sort of a year into it that probably that wasn't what was calling me. Mm-hmm. There was going to be something else for mm-hmm. me. And so I actually made the decision to leave that job how long were you there for? I was there for a year. Okay. Uh, and uh, it was during the... It was, yeah, it was a long time ago. I'm actually not going to say when it was during because it'll age me, Richard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so at the time, you know, I, I did want to come back mm-hmm. home yeah. uh, and I wanted to explore other things. Mm-hmm. So what was next then? Um, the, the next uh, gig that I got was actually... Um, at the Australian Labor Party, okay, um, which was kind of a random thing that came out of left field, well, completely left field, wasn't it? Did you it? grow um, up in Labor politics? No, I didn't. Um, and so I guess I'm, you'd have to say that I'm an opportunist to some degree mm. in that I'd never considered working for a political party mm-hmm. in my life. Um, but I was really excited by the actual job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that time, it was working for the opposition leader in, in Brisbane City Council. Okay. Uh, and who was a lovely man called Brian Melifont. Um, and, you know, for me, that was writing speeches. And it was this brave new world of understanding politics from a different side. Mm. Um, and so it allowed me to, um, you know, to, to learn new things. And that's what I've always wanted to do when mm. I enter a job. I want to learn stuff. I'm mm. not happy unless I'm still learning stuff, still doing stuff. I'm never going to be one of those people who kind of, you know, you walk into the door and <laughs> Marina's sitting in the corner with her feet up on the desk. Sure. Um, I really like um, to, to, to know stuff and to learn stuff. So that opportunity, it wasn't, you know, for me it wasn't a question of, you know, goodness, and perhaps I didn't think it through clear, clearly at the time, 
and that's probably a good thing in that that I might be positioned mm. as being one party or the mm. other as a result of it. It was an opportunity mm-hmm. and it was an opportunity to learn and I wanted to and it was in a great, great space and um, I learnt off some amazing people. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that then led to the Brisbane City Council election in which Jim Sawley uh, was the candidate. He became mayor and when he won the election, because it was largely he and I, yeah. uh, in that election campaign, I um, remember distinctly the day after the election as we were walking sort of um, through Brisbane somewhere, I said, so you're going to take me with you, aren't you? Right. <laughs> to City Hall. I wasn't going to stay at the ALP. I wanted to go to City Hall. So, um, so that made my next move to City Hall where Fantastic. I was for a good 12 years. And just before we move on from that, I mean, you raise an interesting point. Uh, do you think that that uh, alliance or professional relationship with the Labor Party has been something that has, uh, in your career, um, created any kind of stigma or you know any um, external opinions about you? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think anyone who works in politics will have that. Uh, and I guess I've worked very hard um, on uh, on trying to dispel that because at the end of the day, I consider myself a professional. Mm-hmm. And whether you put me in the ALP, I was never a number cruncher or anything like that. I was mm-hmm. interested in the you know public policy. Uh, I was interested in how it all worked and and how to, to and how to leave a legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, while at the same time learning mm-hmm. about those things and learning how you know how those very intriguing elements of society actually worked. So I've, I've had to work very hard um, because people still to this day assume a certain mm. you know, thing about me in relation to the... They, they think they know um, what I think about things and I, I, they don't mm. know what I think about things. I'm a human being who's capable of free thought sure. uh, and I exercise um, free thought. And so um, there have been times in my career where people have pigeonholed me and said, no, um, mm. you know, and... You, you're from the Labor Party, so you you couldn't. You're a political apparatchik, so you're not capable of doing these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, my contention was no, actually, I have a brain, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and I'm very capable of of doing other things. And don't pigeonhole me because that'll be to your detriment, really, mm-hmm. and mine. <laughs> so give me a chance, yeah. and I'll show you that I can, I can, I can do good things if okay. you just give me a chance. And hopefully, through the course of my career, I've proven that, mm-hmm. that I can think from both sides um, and the middle mm-hmm. uh, and I can do what's required of me in each of my professional roles and I will always behave in a professional manner because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I have my reputation and I'm not about to do something to damage my reputation mm. um, and, you know, that's by holding myself to account at you know a high level of professionalism. Mm, okay, I think that uh, it's um, testament to the fact that you've been able to take on some big jobs, including your current one. You know, in what would be your constituents within the UDA would be traditionally, you know, quite the polar opposite of your traditional Labor mm. um, devotees. So, uh, I mean, you've obviously been able to bridge that gap. And, and build that level of uh, personal brand and confidence very well. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm here for a reason, you know. Mm. Like, uh, I love the development industry, I really do. And, I, you know, I've worked for uh, a couple of developers on the way through when I was at Brisbane City Hall. It was very much an issue, mm-hmm. development, mm-hmm. in that time. Uh, and so um, I, I do really genuinely feel passionately about the development industry and what it does. Mm-hmm. And, 
and when I look at what I do in the course of my career, I'm interested in that whole notion of of legacy, of leaving a legacy, of feeling proud of what you've mm. achieved. And I feel very privileged that every day I come to work, I, I work with developers who really are fundamentally about leaving behind a legacy. And um, and I think, wow, what an amazing thing that they get to leave behind. It's incredibly tangible. They mm-hmm. leave communities behind. They, mm. they develop, they build communities for people to live in every day. That excites me. The notion of that excites me. And in terms of the space that I occupy, if I can help them do that job even better through my team, mm. then what a great thing to sure. be able to leave behind. And mm-hmm. so that means that you know when I come to work every day, I view... Um, the world through, I guess, the eyes of my membership Mm -hmm. and also the people who live in my members' products. Mm. So that means that I can enter the space of the consumer, which I'm absolutely passionate about. I love understanding what consumers think. Mm. Um, So understanding what is in that end buyer's mind, what are their needs and wants, um, and how can the UDIA help our industry understand what goes on out there in consumer land so that what we're delivering meets demand but also sort of leads demand mm-hmm. to some degree. So, okay. you know, we're put positioning ourselves at sort of the cutting edge of of the development industry by providing our members with cutting edge research mm-hmm. um, that allows them to, to know what's going on in their industry but also allows us to advocate on their behalf very much through the lens of people. What do people want? How do they want to live? Uh, and that allows us to um, advocate much more effectively mm. um, from the view of independence too. You know, we're, we're kind of um, building our credibility as an expert advisor um, because we do a lot of independent research that, you know, I guess underlines the the institute mm-hmm. in, in our title. Well, let's unpack that a little bit more uh, later in the conversation because I know... Uh, you know, researcher is a big part of uh, what UDIA is all about. Uh, before we get there, though, so 10 years uh, in the office of Lord Mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was it that eventually led you to move out? Well, uh, a very real um, issue in that, you know, Jim was going to resign from or retire mm-hmm. uh, from his role as Lord Mayor. I loved every minute of working in that role. It was dynamic. Um, it was... Um, action-packed, every day was different. It had drama. <laughs> Back in the days when I was a drama queen, that was fun. Um, and I, I loved the challenge of it. Like, I, I loved the environment, the people I worked with. It was always challenging. And, you know, Jim, you know, showed me what leadership was, mm-hmm. you know, whether, um, you know, people had very passionate views about Jim. Um, and I liked that because um, it, it showed me, what leadership really was, Mm. you know, that you made a call and you stood by it. Uh, And he was also a great leader in terms of that external space but also the internal space of working with him Mm. uh, where he would always listen to people's views. He wouldn't necessarily take your advice all the time and that was his prerogative. He was a leader. But he would always ask for advice Mm. and he was always happy for you to give him fearless advice. to which I, I did. Mm. <laughs> I met that brief fearlessly, I think, uh, and uh, and enjoyed every minute of it. And the last couple of years there in the role of Chief of Staff, mm. which I suppose a lot of us only understand Chief of Staff from what we see on uh, you know, some of the American drama shows and so on, but what does that really mean? 
Uh, I guess you're the conduit between a very big bureaucracy mm-hmm. and the political office uh, and ensuring that the agenda of the, um, the leader mm-hmm. is delivered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that means that you're managing your own team to that end, but also making sure that the bureaucracy delivers all of that through the budgeting process, through the development of policy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it was a fascinating job and it was, mm-hmm. um, I'm very thankful for having been uh, given that opportunity because it really allowed me to step out of a space which was largely communications driven mm-hmm. um, which I really enjoyed too um, but it allowed me to step up into much more sort of strategic um, management okay. uh, and uh, it really gave me yeah, the next step that I really needed to be able to go from that role and, and exit the world of, of, of comms. Mm, okay mm-hmm. and so uh, you stepped out of there into consulting. Yes I did. Mm, well so wasn't that an interesting <laughs> challenge. <laughs> Which, which I look again. Um, I, I really, um, I loved that uh, for the fact that it was, it proved something to me, and that was that um, I could, I could go after work and I could get it, um, mm-hmm. and and that, that I could deliver it mm-hmm. as well. So, again, a different challenge. Um, you know, I'm, I, I think part of my nature is that I'm I'm reasonably good at selling things to people. Mm-hmm. I can connect the dots. For people, and so um, ultimately running that consultancy, um, you know, you start off in the early days thinking, "Oh my God, you know, um, how do I get all of these people to believe in us mm. <laughs> and 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 trust us to do their work for them?" But um, but you know, if you put the work in, you get the work yeah. out. So, but obviously, consulting was not something that resonated with you because it was a you know about an eighteen month engagement. Yeah. So uh, I talk to a lot of people who step out of corporate into consulting and some people absolutely love mm-hmm. it and thrive other people miss the opportunity to actually drive outcomes mm-hmm. um, you know what was it for you that uh, made you think well actually consulting's not for me it's the, the ability to drive outcomes mm-hmm. I like to walk into my space each day and know that um, I can achieve outcomes mm-hmm. and in terms of consulting um, I could provide you with advice uh, I could provide you with a strategy um, but I could never guarantee that they were going to implement it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that that connection for me was lost in terms of seeing the outcome of all of that work that you'd put in to deliver results. Uh, and so for me, um, consulting was kind of only half of the equation um, because I really I feel that I need a sense of belonging, you know. And uh, and when you're a consultant, you advise to a lot of people, but you never really belong to anything. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so for me, that yeah, that connection was lost, and so it wasn't really the thing I wanted mm-hmm. to do. And then into uh, your first CEO gig, uh, Brisbane Marketing. You know, yes. for those of us in Brisbane, a very iconic brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that role come about? Um, I had actually been on the board of Brisbane Marketing, okay. uh, and uh, the role came about, and. Uh, I had been, I guess I'd seen it from the inside from City Hall as well, and it was a Mm -hmm. job that fascinated me at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I had been actively involved in the organisation and just, you know, I'd sort of sat down and thought, I want to have a crack at that. Mm. I reckon I could do, I reckon I could do that job. (laughs) And I could could do it well um, if given the chance. So, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I threw my hat in the ring and and ultimately... um, 
thankfully was successful in, sure. in getting that role. And one of the things I'm always interested in is, uh, particularly for people moving into their first CEO mm. role, I imagine you would have done some kind of internal inventory of skills and, mm. and what were the areas that you thought, boy, if I'm going to make a real fist of this, these are the areas that I need to proactively develop within myself in order to be successful? Yeah, look, I think that's a really good question. I think it's a really good question of females too, um, making a decision to put their hat in the ring for something like that because we're always the first ones to, I guess, talk ourselves out of the tree <laughs> and say, look, you know, you know, the, the, the self-doubt is always in your head and mm. it lives with me to this day. Um, you know, I might present as a relatively confident person on the exterior, uh, but generally speaking there are always voices in there saying, you know, Marina, can you really do that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thankfully, there's another voice. <laughs> so I've just revealed there are two voices in my head, two people <laughs> listening. Um, but but there's, yeah, there's, so there's the nagging doubt voice that says, you know, can you do it? And there's mm-hmm. the other voice that sort of, I think, has been able to kind of overshadow the other over time to say, no, you, you know, have yep. a go. I think you can do it. So the shadow side, the uh, can you do this, what were the things that you went, oh, boy, I, I really need to upskill in these areas? It was probably the level of responsibility. <clears throat> okay. At the end of the day, I can back myself on most things. Unless you want me to perform brain surgery, I mm-hmm. reckon I can do it for you. Okay. Um, you know, uh, as long as you're not, you know, technically... It, building a building or something mm-hmm. like that but but generally speaking I can back myself on the fact that I think that I can do the job mm-hmm. in terms of that I've got enough synapses firing to be able to to tackle it but it's the I think the biggest nagging doubts are always you know can you manage those people it's a big responsibility there's a lot of stakeholders involved are they going to trust you um you know, how are you going to do that? How are you going to build trust in that sort of environment? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when those people are going to, you know, all the team are going to look to you, um, are you going to be able, you know, to take them on the journey? Mm-hmm. So they're the sorts of, I guess, the doubts that, that you know, sort of keep me awake at night um, at that time of my career. Um, there are probably other things now, but but um, but at the end of the day, you know, you have to kind of roll the dice and and back yourself. Mm-hmm. And earlier you'd had Jim Sawley as a good you know, leader and career mentor. Mm. Were there people that you lent on at that time and said, look, I'm stepping into a CEO gig um, that were very helpful to you? Yeah, I've always had people that I sort of, you know, touch base with and, mm-hmm. you know, they've changed over the course of my career, etc. But, uh, you know, as you meet new mm-hmm. people. Um, but I've I've um, I've never undergone sort of some sort of formal mentoring, mm-hmm. uh, but I've always had people that I've looked up to and mm-hmm. I've valued the, the opinion of. So I'd always talk to a, along the way okay. um, and get their advice on stuff. If you're grappling with with something or a difficult situation or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. um, that I'd touch base with them to, okay. to get their their read on something and and use that in the mix of making mm-hmm. up my mind. And I suppose uh, you'd also, at some stage, gone and done the AICD qualifications as well. Yes, I did. Did you find those particularly useful? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I did that in the last couple of years that I was at City Hall Mm -hmm. uh, because I was being appointed to boards. Mm -hmm. uh, So I put the case forward that I should be trained um, if I was going to do that. And it's probably one of the best things that I I did, actually, Mm. in doing that course uh, because uh, it really did give me a greater sense of confidence, a greater sense of awareness, too, of what a great and challenging responsibility is and how serious it is. I don't think 
people recognise how serious that responsibility is until you've actually done the formal sure. training no, absolutely. Um, and understand how much trouble you can really get yeah. yourself into. <laughs> I, I do meet with uh, aspiring non-executive directors all the time and uh, they have a you know, a romantic notion of what it means mm. to be a, a board member and I, I often ask myself, would I take that amount of risk on and responsibility for mm. what is often a pretty insignificant, you know, uh, reward in terms of board yeah. remuneration, etc. Mm. And so, uh, you know, uh, a couple of years there and then uh, off to Honeycombs. Off to Honeycombs, yes. My first foray really into um, development mm-hmm. mm, in a big way. Yeah, and Peter Honeycomb... Uh, based in Townsville, but was, you know, starting to really, you know, make some noise on a, on a much bigger scale. And mm. uh, stepping in there as Director of Sales and Marketing, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, look, that was a great role in that, um, look, working for, for Peter, he's a, he's a great leader as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm obviously uh, attracted to environments with, with good leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and he was, um, you know, he, he's a great fellow at the end of the day. He's, like, incredibly smart. Um, a brain with the ability to understand really complex environments. So um, I found that absolutely fascinating. Uh, and uh, again, I was kind of like in this space where I was able to bring to it, I guess, the experience that I had along the way and bringing a consumer focus to that organisation as well mm-hmm. in terms of, um, you know, I found it a really interesting environment when you're surrounded by engineers, which is often the case in, mm. you know, development organisations, and they'd sort of come to me and say, Marina, what do you think of this floor plan? I'd go, okay, well, you know, Marina Vitt might think it's okay, <laughs> but what do our customers think? Yeah. So I'd like to think that I helped to add value in, in terms of bringing some independent customer thought process to... to to that organisation, which I think I pretty much have done through the course of most of my jobs. I'm, mm-hmm. um, I'm very convinced that the end point, which is generally a consumer, mm-hmm. um, is probably the missing um, entity in most people's consideration mm-hmm. when they're actually, you know, thinking about their business. Mm-hmm. Um, we get distracted by the widgets sometimes and forget who we're delivering things for. And I'm not saying that that was what was happening at Honeycombs, but uh, certainly throughout the course of my career I've certainly come to the conclusion that the closer you are um, to the people that you're ultimately providing for the better job that you can actually do Mm. for them. And an amazing you know time too I imagine for you because two years there the first year development industry is going crazy you know everything is bright lights and fantastic opportunities Mm. and so much excitement and then boom GFC and uh, so a year of absolutely you know a um, bear market and mm. then a, a year of a bull market or if I go that around the wrong way uh, <laughs> uh, whatever well, anyway <laughs> uh, so I mean that must have been really fascinating to you know almost overnight to just see you know such a radical change in the external macro environment um, yeah. and particularly in a you know the role of sales and marketing mm. you know with the impact on that must have been just extreme and immediate yeah no it's um certainly uh it was it was a tough gig, uh, and and I was there at a tough time. So yes, I did see both sides of the equation. But again, you know, I think all of those things are fascinating, uh, and in hindsight, even more fascinating. In that, you know, watching um, you know my leader Peter Honeycomb at that time go through that experience, and to see how he worked himself through what was you know difficult mm. times for everyone. Mm. Uh, and you know he survived that and survived it well. Um, and 
that's credit to him mm-hmm. uh, because he's, um, he's, you know, his intellect and his knowledge of the industry and his ability um, to, to form relationships uh, and, I guess, also corporate structures. Um, that was really fascinating, I think, for me at that time. And, you know, that, that, that guy is a survivor. Mm. Um, and he's a survivor because he's smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're always good lessons to learn. Smart and brave. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's about leadership, isn't it, really, at the oh, end of the day? Yeah, sure. Uh, good leaders are brave. Mm-hmm. And there uh, into your role as CEO of Young Care, mm. which again for people you know in Queensland are probably a, a very well-known brand. But for those who are unfamiliar, tell us a little bit about um, Young Care and how you came to uh, join that organisation. Yeah, I was approached to join that organisation, um, and I guess uh, I thought it, it seemed to be an interesting challenge. I'd obviously heard of Young Care. I don't think there were very many people who hadn't heard of Young Care, and I guess. Uh, I thought that I could bring something to it uh, and that it appealed to me also that I, again, it's about leaving legacy mm-hmm. um, that sort of helps drive my decision-making processes and the fact that there were, you know, 750,000 young people around the country um, who who were living in, you know, uh, inappropriate environments um, who required some form of care mm. uh, and, you know, many, you know, being put into aged care, you know, young people being placed into aged care environments um, with um, disabilities, whether they be, you know, brain injuries or or MS or, you know, motor neurons or whatever that might be, it was inappropriate. And uh, and Young Care sought to provide a care model and to build accommodation um, that was appropriate to young people Mm -hmm. um, at that time. And so I thought, again, here's a role... Um, in my unplanned career, um, that actually brought together the skills of my past in terms of you know policy, public policy, um, and advocacy, um, development, mm. communications, um, and just kind of rolled it all into sort of one opportunity where I could um, be the first CEO mm. of Young Care and, and because prior to that, help sort them. of being founder managing director hadn't it? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So the founders had, had run the organisation. I imagine that you know there's a whole heap of considerations in terms of not only stepping in as the first CEO, but mm. stepping into an organisation where the founder managing director, you know, ignited the organisation based on his own personal experience. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, wow, that you know that must have been, uh, uh, again, you know, a very uh, rewarding and yet complex and challenging role. Yeah, it was complex and it, and it was challenging, um, but, again, you know, an amazing experience that mm-hmm. I was able to, um, you know, I, for the rest of my life, I'll be very thankful um, for the fact that I have um, led really a privileged life mm-hmm. um, indeed until this point um, uh, because I haven't had to go through anything like some of those families and I guess the complexity of that environment is the fact that you meet families every day that mm. go through astounding astonishing wow. hardship mm-hmm. um, and for me that was probably what meant that I couldn't stay there for a very long time mm-hmm. I was there for sort of three and a half or so years uh, because you get so uh, involved in those people's lives that, so, you know, they call you on the weekend, and mm. which, you know, I, I did, had no problem with. Um, I loved all of those people. Um, but it becomes, if you're a carer like me, like I care about things, 
um, it becomes all-consuming mm. um, and you end up sort of carrying a burden of worrying about all of those people mm. um, all of the time. Yeah. I just interviewed Paul Quilliam, who uh, founded Hummingbird House, mm-hmm, which yeah. is a, a hospice for children, and uh, I went to visit him out at the facility and, boy, I, I just found it a you know gut-wrenching uh, and just the... <coughs> emotional um, capacity and resilience necessary to do those roles is uh, breathtaking. And you've, you've spoken quite a lot about legacy. Um, you know, when you look back three and a half years at Young Care, you know, what's the legacy that you're proud of leaving there? Look, I, I'm proud of sort of, I guess, setting it self, it's setting the organisation on a sort of professional footing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we built the Gold Coast accommodation during that time, um, you know, got significant funding for the organisation, set up recurrent funding streams for it, etc. So I feel that it, it, I was able to leave it with um, a good structure mm-hmm. uh, and and I think um, it also left me with some very valuable lessons as well in terms of, you know, I, I learned probably softened quite a bit during that period I'd have to say you know most people sort of tend to have this perception of me you know over the course of my career as being a bit of a hard ass uh, and um, for want of a more ladylike phrase Um, but uh, I think um, I guess it opened my eyes to the lives of others Mm. you know perhaps I'd lived in a a bubble Mm -hmm. for quite some time so it, it opened my, my eyes up to the hardship that other people face mm, and sure. the fact that some people just get a really um, bum deal, bum deal yeah. in life, yeah. And, um, but also, you know, the, one of the things that we started uh, when I was there was um, the trek through the Simpson Desert. So when mm-hmm. we were looking for something as a touch point um, to actually, you know, engage people within that organisation, we started the trek across the Simpson Desert, which was... Um, um, which I actually, you know, when we when we decided to do it, I then realised that I actually had to go on it. Right. <laughs> I couldn't actually go to sort of business leaders and say, hey, would you like to spend 12 days crawling across sand dunes? <laughs> Unless I was able to actually say that I would do it myself. Uh, so I was catch-22 um, in that regard. So it um, set me upon a, a course of uh, actually getting fit. Okay. And <laughs> Which has t- stayed with me for the, you yeah. know, since that time. So oh, that's, that's a good great. thing. Good outcome for me as well. Good for you. And uh, during that time, I noted that uh, you went across to um, Harvard and did some uh, mm. study there. Yes. Um, you know, certainly a very revered institution. How did you find that experience? Oh, that was an amazing experience. It was, it felt surreal Um for the time that I was there, you know, walking around this incredible institution um, that I'd only ever sort of seen in movies before mm-hmm. uh, and um, and to the calibre of of lecturers at Harvard is mm. unbelievable. They're like rock stars, mm-hmm. you know, they're amazing. Um, and it makes you very sharply focused. Like it was a time of intense study too because it um, – if one of those lecturers called upon you <laughs> – to um <laughs> to discuss a case uh, or or whatever you'd better be on your game. Right. So it meant that you were up till bloody you know two o'clock every morning, you know going over those cases and knowing them mm-hmm. inside out because mm-hmm. one did not want to embarrass themselves sure. in a room full of. Because I just felt you know it's one of those times in life where you feel like, what am I doing here? <laughs> the 
someone going to find out that I'm the fraud in the room? Because you're surrounded by all of these amazing people. And it's on a global stage. Yes, absolutely. People from all over the world who've come to Harvard to study. And so, you know, I'd be sitting around there going, what on earth am I doing here? Um, So it was an amazing environment where I met incredible people. And uh, if anyone ever gets a chance to do that, they should absolutely embrace it because Mm -hmm. um, it was an incredible learning opportunity for me. I learned a lot uh, there and um, made some great contacts Mm -hmm. uh, and really, you know, saw incredible um, education Mm. unfold before my eyes. Right. Mm. And then into your current role. CEO of UDIA, yes. so uh, five years in that role. Yes, um, second longest stint ever. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were appointed, you know, uh, Marina, welcome to the organisation. Mm. What was the mandate? The mandate here was change. Okay. Um, so, uh, so change. I did. Right. <laughs> so, I, you know, I've always got sort of a methodical way that I go about um, approaching any organisation that I walk into, and that's to, to analyse it mm-hmm. from a relatively independent. Um, viewpoint um, so that uh, I can understand how Mm. it works in its current form, work out where the issues are, where the opportunities are, bring independent research to that wherever possible to to quantify that and make every, make sure that everything is evidence-based. I'm, um, while I think I've got good gut instinct, I don't think anyone should ever rely on that solely. Mm-hmm. And that evidence is a really good thing to operate with. So I always try to bring evidence to that and then work out from that point of view where to from here. Mm-hmm. Um, paramount to me is that an organisation has a really clear sense of its brand. And for me, brand drives a business. Uh, so brand is not a marketing strategy. Um, certainly it forms part of, you know, um, it, it's what drives, you know, marketing. But brand drives a business. If you don't have a clear view of who you are Mm -hmm. as an organisation, I don't know how you can make decisions. Mm -hmm. So it's important that you're able to make decisions for an organisation through a very clear lens of understanding of what you're there to do, um, which allows you to understand what you do do and really importantly, I think, understand what you don't do as an organisation, particularly, you know, in the realm of not-for-profit and I think this applies to every business, but using it in the not-for-profit space, you know, one uh, and you know, something that I learned very, um, very clearly at Harvard too was that um, you can't afford to have mission drift. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're there for a purpose, you're there for a purpose, mm-hmm. um, and as long as your purpose has been well researched and evidence-based, that's what you're there to achieve. Mm-hmm. And and along the way, people will try to divert you from that. Um, and in the charitable world, that's really um, a, a really challenging one because if someone walks in and says, you know, hey, Marina, I'm a donor, I've got a million bucks for you, um, but I'd like you to do this with your million dollars, mm. it puts you in this really vexed position of, oh, geez, I really, we need that million dollars. <laughs> but that's not what we do. But, geez, we could do it because you've got a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> And you've got to really rein yourself in and say, mm. no, actually, you know, it's, and that's a really tough one to say. Or alternatively say, do we need to reconsider our purpose in order to change and accommodate, you know, what what is happening in the environment? Yes, absolutely, that's fine, but you can't change your mission based on the fact that somebody's wanting to drag you there for a particular reason, mm. unless it's absolutely valid yeah, but and if- checks in with 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 what you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. For yeah. example, in the disability-related mm. not-for-profit sector, 
suddenly, you know, there's NDIS, mm. and uh, NDIS is causing massive reconsideration Absolutely. of purpose and mission and so on. So um, interesting you talk about brand. So if you think of the brand when you stepped into the role five mm. years ago and the brand of UDAA today, what would you say are some of the substantive changes over that period? I think um, it's it's really sort of listening to who we are and that is, you know, our, our mantra is that we are here to assist the development industry provide better communities for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, fundamental to that was the establishment of a research foundation for the Institute, uh, and and that has delivered significantly in terms of our positioning as an organisation and our ability to provide advice um, to the industry and to government. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when you can provide advice from the vantage point of independence, um, that Yes, it's through consultation with our membership, which is absolutely paramount that we need to listen to our members and 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 what their day to day issues and concerns are. But to add the I guess the independence of research to that makes it a far more powerful platform mm-hmm. for us to advocate for on their behalf mm-hmm. um, and to bring community into that mix as well as to recognise that that's the endpoint we're providing homes, lifestyles for people to live and to work in, it's a big responsibility. Uh, And I think that we're much more uh, attuned to that as an Mm organisation and much more sharply focused on that. And that's, I guess, how we view everything that we do as an organisation. We're here to to help our industry with knowledge, uh, with research, uh, with professional development, those sorts of things that are sharply focused by our mission as an organisation. So, okay. mm. And so now looking towards the future, I mean, uh, uh, there's still you know plenty of career left ahead. You know, what are the kind of things that you're excited about uh, achieving in the future? Oh, look, I, you know, uh, I, I'm excited about uh, the board role um, of SEQ Water. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about doing more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, because I like to be able to... Uh, to be able to sort of helicopter, I guess, into okay. an organisation at that strategic level mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to hopefully add value uh, into those organisations. I've, uh, I've sat on a number of boards and when I look back on them uh, and look at, at what I was able to contribute, I have a great sense of, you know, satisfaction, mm-hmm. I guess, that... I was active in those roles and I contributed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think, you know, you should ever be in any space unless you're there to contribute. And so do you see a portfolio career being the next step for you or is that something that's, uh, you know, further down the track? I think that's further down the track. Yeah. Um, you know, again, uh, opportunities as they present, I guess, I, I consider them as they as they evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, not to go with the flow, uh, but... But at the moment, I'm really happy in the space that I'm in. Uh, I, I really, um, I think I've got a lot more to give mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what we're doing here, and uh, and certainly boards into the future uh, are where I'd like to be at. So absolutely, mm. within the consideration of what I what I do next. Okay. Mm. Now a big uh, part of this podcast is. Uh, 
for people listening in who are aspiring CEOs or non-executive directors, mm-hmm. I mean, you've touched on quite a few elements over the course of the conversation, but if you were to distill some of your key learnings in relation to your own career and how you've established your brand and how you've you know, remained relevant and successful, well, what would be some of those things that you'd share? I think we've touched on it um, already, but I think one of the key things is you've got to be brave, I guess, and you've got to be brave in a couple of ways, really. Um, You've got to back yourself um, in your decisions. You've got to be confident about being able to do that, and that's hard Mm. at times, I think. Uh, But you've got to be able to do that, Um, and you've got to be, I guess, as a leader, you have to be brave for those around you as well um, and take all of those people with you on a journey. So they've got to have the faith in you that you have their back as well. Um, and that's, I guess, being the leader of a team. So I think, you know, bravery, um, you've got to have confidence in yourself. And I probably speak to some of the women out there on that front as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, you know, sometimes it is really hard. Uh, and I'm not here to sort of, you know, beat the feminist you know, drum or anything, but, you know, I guess in hindsight, looking back on my career as a female, you know, I didn't realise probably at times some of the challenges um, because I was kind of brash and kind of just, (laughs) just kind of got, you know, pushed my way through them um, Mm. and didn't realise at the time what was actually even happening. but I, I, as I look back on it, I realise that perhaps, yeah, it was tougher than it, it probably should have had to have been at times. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was, the the difficulties were self-imposed or externally imposed? No, externally okay. imposed. Right. Some, no, I, look, no, both at times. I, probably um, internally as you get older um, mm-hmm. and sort of start to question things a bit more. When I was younger, I didn't sort of question things as much. I just I had a job to do. Mm-hmm. So off I went to do it. Um, and and I guess uh, and I guess too, it's until you get in, into a senior role, you don't really see the roadblocks as much. Um, people don't try to challenge you as much based on your gender card, but people do challenge you based mm. on 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 your gender, which I find fascinating. Um, so you know, so you, you've got to have real confidence. And there's this, um, you know, again talking to the voices in my head. Um, there's there's parts of you throughout your career that because you're taking steps up all the time mm. um, in your next role, etc., taking on new challenges, that there's a voice that says, "Oh my God, you know, is someone going to find out that you, you know, you're a fraud at some mm. point?" <laughs> well, it's really interesting looking at your career. You know, in that essentially there's been no linear internal progression. You know, you've you've gone from organisation to organisation, mm. industry to industry. Mm. You know, government to commercial to not-for-profit, etc. Mm. Um, and and it's through the change of um, organisation you've ratcheted it up mm. role and responsibility yes. versus the traditional get a job, do a good job, keep mm. your head down and, and be promoted internally. And I, I suppose um, there are obviously pros and cons you know, to that kind of career, but mm. it's obviously worked very well for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess... Um you know, I'm I'm happy with um, with with where I am. You know, um, and I, I'm I'm proud of what I've done. And and I guess you know, I I, I was quite senior at a very early Absolutely. age, and so I guess in terms of career progression, it was kind of hard. Mm. Um, 
because there were you know there there wasn't much opportunity within those organisations mm-hmm. and then I kind of stepped out and became sort of leaders within each of the organisations I went to from I guess from City Hall. So um, so I took on those leadership roles relatively early I guess in my career in hindsight mm-hmm. um, and I, I attribute that to the fact that you know I had great great mentors mm-hmm. um, and people who instilled in me a confidence that I could do things and I'd have to say that my upbringing helped to do that too like you know I've, I've got a great um, mum and dad yeah. who always told me that I could do whatever I wanted to do mm. and that no one should ever limit mm. my decisions you know when I was you know young thinking I'd you know I guess I'll become a teacher like the rest of my family, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of my, um, you know, cousins, etc. And not that there's anything wrong with teaching, you know, it's a fine profession, etc. But my mother said to me, you don't have to be mm. that at all. You mm. think outside the box and you can do whatever you want, Marina, mm. you know, just um, do whatever your heart and your head tells you to do. Um, so that, that, you know, that sort of upbringing challenged me from a very early age to, to think differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I guess um, and that's stood me in good stead. You know, I've got a very strong mother um, who um, was was very passionate. You know, she didn't get to pursue the career that she wanted to. She was a talented artist and mm-hmm. um, didn't get to do that because of things that happened in her life. So she was very clear on the fact that there were going to be no limits. Follow your dreams <laughs> for me. Yeah. So she um, she's always been very good like right. that, and she's always been about follow your dreams and always make sure you're happy. Mm-hmm. In, in what you're doing. So uh, her voice thanks, is always, mum. yes, thanks, Mum. Yes, if you're <laughs> listening, sure love you, Mum. <laughs> and uh, we've talked a lot about work today, but, uh, you know, when you're not working, what are the kind of things that you enjoy doing to keep, uh, you know, you are vital and, uh, and relaxed and excited about life? Uh, well, I've turned into somehow I've turned into one of those fitness um, oh, freaks. Um, right. Or not, you know, not that I look like one, but, um, but I certainly... To get my head in the right space, like mm-hmm. there's that whole sort of theory around, um, you know, what is it, the corporate athlete, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to keep yourself um, mentally aware. And I think uh, for me, I'm, I'm, I love going to the gym and I love lifting weights and all that sort okay. of stuff because it's technical mm-hmm. uh, and it means that, you know, if you're lifting something, you can't be thinking about, oh, geez, I need to think a bit ba- about the balance sheet while mm-hmm. I'm doing that because I'll end up doing something really sure. bad yeah. <laughs> to myself, causing myself an injury, which you don't want to do. Um, so I love doing that because it takes my head away from the day-to-day okay. and it makes me feel good and it yep. fills me with, you know... Um, positivity to okay. start my day every day so I'm pretty religious about it mm-hmm. um, what about holidays and travel and things like love that? holidays love travel <laughs> <laughs> so you know uh, you know it's um, very you know privileged in that you know I've been able to travel quite a bit mm-hmm. um, and I like to I like to see the world and and see how other people live um, and you know I, I try to do that as often as I as I can, you know, budgets um, constraints um, <laughs> keep me sort of grounded for far too long. But you know, I do love to, to travel. I love to um, uh, love cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously my um, my European ancestry that comes out in that regard. So I love to express myself creatively through okay. that. 
Great. Um, don't like recipes, like to make them up. Uh-huh. I'm the reverse. I love cooking, but I have to follow the recipe <laughs> yeah. to the letter. Yeah, no, I have to deviate. Oh, I can't really? possibly deliver you anything that uh-huh. has to actually follow the recipe. Okay. All right. <laughs> Unless well, it's a cake. Uh, <laughs> well, before cake. we wrap it up, uh, is there anything else that you were hoping to talk about or you'd like to leave um, uh, uh, as we wind up the podcast or are you done? I reckon I'm done, Richard. Fantastic. Well, uh, fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time, Marina. It's been a great conversation and have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks again for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Marina. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.